Well, welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen, a different podcast this week for a couple of reasons. Uh, firstly, I'm here with Jim Garrity, who is at the National Rifle Association convention with me in Indianapolis. Kevin Williamson is off. Uh, and secondly, we have a couple of guests today. Uh, we have both uh, Senator Marco Rubio of Florida, who sat down and talked to me about guns and about foreign policy in about 2014 and about the United States. Uh, and we have Governor Mike Pence of Indiana, uh, who sat down and talked to me about the NRA and Indiana and also Common Core. So it's going to be a slightly different show. Also, this is sponsored by Remington. Uh, they've kindly uh, agreed to put their name on this. Uh, maybe if they're listening, they'll send me one of those lovely 870 shotguns that <laughs> they've sold so many of, but I won't hold my breath. Um, anyhow, Jim, uh, this isn't your first NRA convention. No, it's my third. I went to um, 09 and 10, kind of right. leading up to the midterms then. And you, uh, you walked around mm -hmm. today on the, uh, on the main floor, which uh, people are going crazy because the NRA has been billing it as 9,000 feet of firearms. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, you saw that. What else did you see? Well, it, it's always a fun event to cover. Uh, I had described it at one point as CPAC with a gun show, but it actually isn't quite. It, 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 the, the crowd is not necessarily political. I'd say maybe half of them are, are really into this and, and following the midterm elections and um, really excited to see the various, you know, uh, pro-Second Amendment lawmakers who are speaking today. And then half of them probably don't attend this and don't really care about it. Like, it's not they don't care. They just don't follow it. They're here for the products. They're here and every gear imaginable. Uh, if you want something kind of pink for the ladies, they have that. Um, you know, sights and holsters and... Uh, katana stores. I did not expect to find being sold by pirates. By the way, like full pirate regalia. Um, uh, every, you know, it, it's kind of fascinating. And you, know, I'm a pro Second Amendment guy, but I am not steeped in the hunting or gun culture. So for me, this is like a field trip, seeing you know stuff that I, I just never see in my safe suburbia of Yuppie Acres. Um, so I really enjoy it. The, but the the interesting thing is that this is a pretty conservative, pretty politically attuned crowd, and so when they do their uh, speeches with the politicians and elected officials. It's always kind of fascinating to see how they tailor their remarks and anybody who's kind right. of saying, hey, look at me, I might be somebody you might want to vote for. Someday. Yeah, and that's something that interests me because I think when you listen to the speakers, mm -hmm. you get the impression that there is not a bright line between the Second Amendment issue mm -hmm. and other conservative causes, uh, low taxes, smaller mm -hmm. government, the TSA, the NSA, and First Amendment issues. But of course, I think what you have to remember gun politics in the United States is not remotely as partisan as people think mm. it is. But of course, not everybody attends the NRA convention, even if they're a member, even if they're pro-Second mm. Amendment. And more to the point, most people who are here will not go to the speeches. I mean, they yeah. are ticketed. And, and there is a, a large number of people who go to the speeches. You, I went down there myself um, today. But there are probably more people who just hang around, look at the gun shows, go to the seminars, and mm -hmm. so on and so forth. So, you know, in some regards, it's a self-selecting group. Right? Yeah. Now, because it's a self-selecting group, it seems to be very popular among politicians who are positioning themselves, maybe. So I wonder if you wanted to give us a bit of insight as to which yeah. politicians were positioning themselves, which ones did a good job, and, and how you think that's going to play sure. out. Uh, one thing that kind of stood out this year, I mean, there, there are times in the past where you can see a, a person who's speaking, uh, is kind of shoehorning in their traditional stump speech with a little bit more gun stuff at the beginning at the end. Um, almost all of them today, Rubio, Santorum, uh, Mike Pence, Dan Coates, uh, Bobby Jindal, 
with what we've seen in the past year or two from the Obama administration, there's a ready-made theme here, which is that you know, traditionally, you know, the, 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 the applause line or the key line of almost every speech at this convention is the Second Amendment is under attack. Um, this year, that people said that, but they also said the entire Bill of Rights is under attack. And they talked about uh, the IRS abuses in the First Amendment, uh, sometimes mentioning the NSA and um, the Fourth Amendment. Basically, you know, this is a, as Mark Levin put it at one point, we're now living in a post-constitutional era. And if you're a gun owner, you care about the Second Amendment, you know, Santorum said it very explicitly, you got to wake up and notice and, and be active on the fact that all these other parts, all these other freedoms are eroding as rapidly as the Second Amendment ones are. And that's a pretty effective rallying cry, I think, that, you know, plays well for, a, you know, for any aspiring Republican president. Right. And Mitch McConnell was here today. He's obviously not running right. for yeah. president. And he spoke mostly about the First Amendment, which I, I wrote on the corner earlier. Now, that's partly because Mitch McConnell is more of an expert on the First Amendment mm. than the Second Amendment. He's very good on the Second Amendment, but he's the guy who fought campaign finance mm -hmm. and has done for years since, since the 80s, and he's really won of late. Mm. But he probably wouldn't have made that speech, you're right, a few years ago. So maybe that is a, a general change that we've seen. Maybe the IRS has brought that out, yeah, yeah. and the NSA scandals have have brought that out, but you were you were particularly interested in the way in which Mike Pence. Yeah, because he began, you know, because he's a guy who kind of you know he, he was elected governor of Indiana. He'd been a Capitol and a pretty prominent voice up in Capitol Hill for a bunch of years. Comes to Indiana, goes back to Indiana to be governor, and kind of slid off the national radar screen. You didn't hear a lot about him in the national press. Uh, and then in the past, I'd say month or two, his name started getting mentioned again as a potential Republican you know, contender. Uh, if you're a governor of a state like Indiana and you've got a solid conservative record, yeah, people are going to take a look at you. Um, I think it was, it was Bloomberg that helpfully pointed out that he's a Coke favorite. That's the first thing you need to know about them. You know, it's the signifier that he's one of the bad guys in, in their minds. Um, but he, so he begins by giving the speech, and this is being held in Indianapolis. So you almost always get the, local, the governor of, of the state that's hosting the convention. And it begins with the very much, I hope you have a good time, enjoy our hospitality, isn't Indiana great? You know, kind of almost your Indiana, you know, Chamber of Commerce type speech. And it wasn't a bad at that point, but it was just like, okay, you know, we're here. You know, it's not like the NRA chose the venue. It's not like the members, you know, held a ballot and said, what, what, what city do we really love? It's a lovely city, you know. But then towards the end... Um, he he kind of shifted a bit more into how the philosophy of government that has thrived in Indiana under him and also under Mitch Daniels, his predecessor. Um, a, a, he, you know, for example, he mentioned that, you know, we believe education policy is a state and local matter. He never explicitly said Common Core, but, you know, that was that, you know, that catnip there. Um, and then he really kind of got into a very federalism approach, kind of like uh, Rick Perry back in 2012, saying that the state governments are not the regional outposts of the federal government. Yeah. And that got some applause. And he really kind of, you know, hammered in on that. That he's, oh, that uh, Washington is, Washington is broke, but it is also broken. And the cure for what ails America will come more from the state capitals right. than it ever will from our nation capital. And, you know, this is like strong stuff. And, like, it's not to say Mike Pence is definitely running for president, but if he were, this is the kind of speech he would. And I thought it was kind of intriguing to see him uh, take that approach. Right. Well, I actually sat down with Mike Pence earlier. I didn't ask him if he was running for president. but uh, Like I, you'd say it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> well, well, I did ask Marco Rubio. You'll wait to, okay. see, wait to see what he says. But uh, no, I sat down with Mike Pence. So uh, on the Mad Dogs and Englishman podcast sponsored by Remington, this is Mike Pence. Well, I'm here with Governor Mike Pence of Indiana. And uh, we're at the NRA convention in Indianapolis. And we have a lot of people who listen um, to the podcast and even read National Review who 
probably don't come from politics in quite the same way that we do. As you can hear from my accent, I'm British. So maybe if you could just explain why it's important that the NRA does what it does and why you're pleased to welcome them to Indiana and what the fights are in this area. Well, uh, th thank you. Well, welcome. Thank uh, you. Welcome to National Review, to the Hoosier State. Um, uh, we're just delighted uh, to have uh, uh, the NRA's annual meeting uh, here in our capital city in Indiana. We're really a, uh, a state that has long cherished uh, the right to keep and bear arms and have a strong record uh, in defending that right yeah. in our laws. Uh, but we're also, you know, as, as I said at... at uh, the stadium a few moments ago. Uh, we're a freedom-loving uh, state. Um, we we believe in the, the freedom from debt. We have balanced budgets and strong reserves. We believe in the freedom to keep more of what you earn. We've been busy cutting taxes in recent years. Uh, I've signed some $650 million in annual tax relief uh, into law since I became governor. The freedom to choose where your kids go to school, the freedom to run our schools without unnecessary federal intrusion. And um, so, you know, for me to have the NRA, which is one of the great champions of freedom, uh, here uh, in, in the heart of Indiana is a, is a real privilege. And, um, and I know they're going to have a great experience in the Hoosier State this weekend. There's something you said during your speech. Um, you said, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, but you effectively said, you know, the states are not regional departments of the federal government. And, and last year, when the Toomey Mansion bill, for example, was, was put up in Washington and it went down, effectively that would have federalized uh, a bunch of laws, background checks, and so forth. Um, how important is it to keep these questions at the state level rather than federally? Well, I, I think, look, the, the Second Amendment is in our national charter in the Constitution of the United States. And so in my years in the Congress, I was a strong defender of the Second Amendment and, and supported efforts uh, to reaffirm that. Uh, my, my point to today was really a much broader point, is that as, as we labor to really renew this country, I wanted to, to challenge uh, the people that are gathered here from, from around America to think just as much about the states right. as they do about the national government. Uh, I said, you know, that uh, I spent 12 years in Washington. I've spent um, a little more than a year as governor of the great state of Indiana, and I'm, I'm more convinced every day that the cure for what ails this country is going to come more from our nation's state capitals than it ever will from our nation's capital. And, and that competitive federalism, reviving um, uh, the ability of states to innovate uh, and to um, uh, develop and promote policies and practices that uh, will attract jobs, will achieve educational outcomes, will promote and preserve freedom, uh, I, I think is an idea whose time has come. And what does that renewal look like? I mean, so say you have to do, because you're going to, the, the problem, of course, with, with wanting to do a lot of this at the state level is that you're going to have to get, or we're going to have to get the federal government out as well, right. right? Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, if there were, say, two or three things that could be done to, to facilitate that renewal, what, what would they be? Well, I think you, I think you, you really start down the list of, uh, of everything from, from uh, health care uh, to transportation to education. You know, when it comes to education, I think the federal government ought to provide resources, not red tape. Uh, allow states to innovate, states to be in the lead uh, on education innovation, whether it's standards or, or curriculum or otherwise. I think education is a state and local function. Uh, when it comes to health care, I think block granting Medicaid back to the states. Uh, an, an idea that uh, w that we championed for years on Capitol Hill, 
is, is, would be a powerful way toward, to invite and catalyze 50 different uh, laboratories of innovation and reform in healthcare. Uh, here in Indiana, we're, we're seeking to advance uh, uh, the introduction of health savings accounts into our public systems. Uh, but having to go to the federal government and ask for waivers and negotiate waivers instead of uh, doing what we did with welfare reform in the 1990s uh, all across this country, where the federal government block granted the resources back to the states and said, um, you figure out how to get people from welfare to work. And that gave rise to a whole generation of change and moved tens of millions of Americans back into the workplace. So uh, the, the, I, I think the list uh, is, is, um, uh, is almost endless. There are those things that the national government uh, should always do. Uh, with regard, obviously, to the national defense yeah. and to interstate commerce and a broad range of areas. But I really do believe that, as Ronald Reagan advocated in a speech before our state legislature back in 1982, um, that, uh, uh, that uh, the time had come to, to, to look for ways to permanently reduce the size and scope of the federal government by sending more resources, more flexibility back to the states. And as in, as uh, as you see the progress that places like Indiana uh, are making versus the gridlock and the bankruptcy of Washington, D.C., I, I think, I think, uh, I think uh, this is an idea that uh, is, is uh, uh, I think, uh, particularly ripe for the times in which we live. So there was, there was a recent flap um, over Common Core and that sort of plays into the federal and the state and the standards sure. and so on. You just want to talk a little bit about your attitude toward that and the decision right. that was made? And Well, I, for years I believed education was a state and local function. I was one of a handful of Republicans that opposed President Bush's No Child Left Behind bill back in 2001 for that reason. And when I became governor, our state, thanks to the efforts of thousands of uh, grassroots activists, parents, uh, really began to question uh, the Common Core. Indiana was one of the first states to embrace it, among the some uh, uh, 45 states that had mm -hmm. adopted Common Core. But many Hoosiers, me included, were very concerned about ceding control over the development of our standards to um, uh, this uh, uh, national consortium, which was increasingly associated uh, with the national government in Washington, D.C., and the race to the top funding being the example. So we moved legislation first to pause Common Core, and then this spring I signed legislation to remove Indiana from Common Core. All the while, we've been working with more than 150 classroom teachers, subject matter experts, college faculty um, to develop standards in Indiana that would be written by Hoosiers for Hoosiers and be uncommonly high. Our, our people put in more than 6,000 hours. Um, mm -hmm in the development of multiple drafts. And, uh, and I'm, I'm very confident uh, that we've produced standards that are going to serve our kids uh, and serve uh, our state uh, for many years to come. Well, this is the Mad Dogs and Englishman podcast, uh, sponsored this week, kindly, this weekend by Remington. And um, that was Governor Mike Pence answering my questions kindly here at the National Rifle Association. Um, I also sat down today with Marco Rubio. And his speech, Jim, today was, it was very Marco Rubio, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Um, give us an indication of where he was coming from. Sure. Well, uh, there was a, a Brittany Moret is a, is a conservative activist who, who tweeted out that, you know, I could listen to Marco Rubio talk about anything 
including narrating a slug crossing the street. And I think you could, because you know exactly how Marco Rubio would do it. It would be like, that slug had a dream. And he knew that street was long and it was gonna be a hard, and he, you know, it was, he was grinding his way down and he knew it was a far, far, far away. And there was adversity, but he had a dream and he persevered and he made it. And that slug was named America. You know, right. I, I exaggerate. And slug. there's only one. Yeah. There's only one slug and it needs to be kept alive. Yeah. And, and here's the thing, like what's interesting, you've said in the past had this kind of really kind of, re- it, you know, being the son of immigrants, he kind of, you know, taps into that, um, which is a message that is, I think, you know, very resonant with uh, conservatives and the Republican base. Also, perhaps a little bit flattering, you know, that, as he likes to point out, people don't get into boats and flee America and risk their lives to do all that. You know, we're, we're doing something right here. Um, and if the whole message of the NRA convention is we have to preserve the Second Amendment, and more broadly, we need to preserve the Bill of Rights. Yeah. You know, another common theme was this fear of losing the America that everybody in this audience grew up with. Now, what about Rubio's position in the hearts of conservatives ah, you know because he is it, it's interested me not not only has he been damaged clearly damaged by the, the immigration bill that he mm-hmm. supported but in straw polls for example the yeah. people who are winning them are Rand paul and mike huckabee yep. and rubio has been coming in with two three percent and yet you you look at him today and he's clearly a winsome fellow oh yeah you know you know just buckets of natural charisma and great on the stump um keeps the audience riveted one of the things I think, look, you know, when he took on Christ, you know, the, the you know definitive flip flopping, you know, stands for nothing, whichever way the wind blowing, got, you know, previously Republican, now turned Democrat, Charlie Christ, Rubio was this Tea Party hero. And it's kind of interesting to see how quickly he stopped being the face of the Tea Party. Mm. He gets involved in the uh, the Gang of Eight bill, and you know, he gets dismissed as a Gang of Ocho and, and Amnesty, which I think is a, a very legitimate criticism of that bill. And it's interesting how that issue, like, all of a sudden, he's, he's, you know, everybody's kind of doesn't trust him on anything anymore. Um, so he's gotten very active, obviously, in, the, in foreign policy discussions. He's speaking here in Indianapolis. I can't help but how much he, he, the, the subtext is, look, I know you don't like that bill like I pushed, but I'm still good on the other issues. So have we him. written him off too early? Oh, I, I, I'd like to think, like, I still like the guy. Now, some people might say that's just me being a squish and not being sufficiently. I, I kind of feel like you look over at this whole field, chances are, You'll, you'll, it'd be really tough to find somebody who's never done anything to irk any corner of right. conservatism. So, you know, if, you know, if amnesty or, or immigration reform is your issue and you really feel like that's an unforgivable sin, okay, he may not be your guy. But for a lot of other Republicans, that may not be their make or break life or death issue. And oh, by the way, it's worth noting that bill isn't going anywhere, right? I mean, again, no, you know, Mickey Cow still keeps warning us. But that, I think that, the worry is that he, he would sign it. But I would say, if conservatives have got themselves into the position where they're willing to write off people like Marco Rubio because they disagree yeah. with him on one area. Now, I do understand that it was a different time, but it should be remembered an area in which Ronald Reagan was not exactly strong, then they're going to do very poorly for the foreseeable future because everybody yeah. is going to do something to annoy them. If nothing else, just pointing out that this is, you know, spring 2014 right right we have more time to evaluate marco rubio and take a look at him and say you know like there's no you know why, why are we crossing any name off the list right now considering right. where we are and all well, the road ahead of us in which case i will allow the listeners to evaluate marco rubio uh on the mad dog and englishman podcast sponsored by remington uh this is me sitting down earlier with marco rubio after his speech to answer my question okay i'm here with uh, senator marco rubio of florida and um I suppose my first question, Senator, is 
You talk a lot about the American dream, and, yes. and being an immigrant myself, I feel sometimes as if people who are either immigrants or who are the children of immigrants or who have seen maybe firsthand how people in their family have seen firsthand what the rest of the world can be like. And I certainly didn't come from Cuba. I came from England. It's not the same thing, but still America is exceptional. And you touched on that in your speech. And I just wondered if you could um, sort of explain why the Second Amendment or how the Second Amendment fits into that idea of American exceptionalism. Well, a couple points. Uh, first is because we're unique among the nations of the world with that sort of constitutional protection built in. Primarily because what it says is we trust people. We trust what our people will do with their time, their energies, uh, their families, and as a result, we don't think we need to protect our people from themselves. Quite frankly, our Constitution protects our people from government. Mm -hmm. The second point to it is the American dream, I think, sometimes is misunderstood as simply an economic dream. How much money you make, how many things you own. But the reality is the American dream is about something deeper than that. It's about achieving happiness as you define it. And part of that is providing your family with a safe and secure environment where you can raise them without fear for their safety and their security. The Second Amendment allows us to do that. Now, millions of Americans choose not to, and that's their right. But millions of Americans choose to protect their families and provide for their security by bearing arms. And, and the Second Amendment protects that. And that's a key part of happiness. In other parts of the world, people basically are defenseless if confronted with any sort of violent attack against their families or their loved ones, they have to rely on the government to, to, on, to only do that. And uh, so I think that's why it is important in terms of the American dream. Yeah, and you, you said something earlier that I hear a lot, which is, well, America is the only country in which, and it's always made as if it's sort of, that's a bad thing, or right. the very fact of it, it's standing alone. Um, how much of a problem do you think that mentality is proving? I think it's problematic in the sense that there's a concerted effort among many in the media and in the entertainment industry and political leaders to stigmatize guns and gun ownership. It's almost similar to the argument they make that, you know, there's, there's no safe way to smoke cigarettes. They're arguing that there's no safe way to own guns or to possess guns, that there's something strange about people that like to own guns. And, and I, so I think that's what they tie into, that this is some sort of an outdated relic from 200 years ago that no longer applies. You may, some people argue that was designed during the revolutionary period. It really has outlived its usefulness. So, you know, I think they've gotten some traction among some Americans with regards to that. Despite all that, there's still extraordinary support for the Second Amendment because millions of people uh, depend on it and its rights. And you see that reflected in elections. You see that reflected in public polling. You see that reflected in the results of legislation. Almost every victory that's been accomplished against the Second Amendment has come from courts or executive orders. At least significant numbers of them have. So what's the biggest challenge for the Second Amendment? Because I know you were outspoken uh, last year when the Toomey Mansion bill was up um, against that bill. But what yeah. is the biggest challenge at the moment? I think the two big challenges are the stigmatization of gun ownership. Okay. Um, the, the idea that somehow if you own a gun, you're doing something wrong. You know, you're doing, you know, you're doing something that isn't good for your family. And I think that in and of itself is a long-term problem. I think in the short term is an administration that quite frankly has shown no, uh, no limits in terms of their willingness to use executive order to try to impose policy changes upon us. And, and I think that's troubling as well. So if we could talk just a little bit about domestic politics. Yes. Obviously 2014 is coming mm -hmm. up. And you know, in politics, six months or however long it is until elections is a very long time. Um, why do you think there has been, and I mean, let me phrase this a different way. You know, Francis Fukuyama, and 
going back to what we were saying about America is the only country, sort of wrote this piece in the Wall Street Journal a while back, and he said, you know, this is the only country in which people still fight about health care, right? You know, like anywhere else, they'd have just, let it, just let it go. It's the only country in which people are still fighting about gun rights and so on and so forth. I mean, the reaction to Obamacare, for example, has been pretty astonishing still. Do you think that, uh, do you think this is going away? Do you think that no. Obama is right that the debate is over and that eventually it will just fizzle out? No, here's why the debate's not over. The purpose of Obamacare, as was sold to the American people, was we have 15, 20, 12 to 15 percent of Americans that do not have health insurance, and we want to help them. And so that's what Obamacare will do. And the other 70-some-odd percent of Americans who have health insurance they're happy with, they're going to get to keep it. And that's not what it's turned out to be. What they've done is they've disrupted every American's health insurance and health care coverage, whether it's the insurance company you have or the doctors you can see or the care you have access to or the price. They've disrupted everyone's and impacted everyone's health care, and they've made just a small dent in terms of the number of uninsured. So that's one reason why it's not going away. And the other is because this is personal. This is not some political debate that may or may not impact you, but you just have an opinion about. This is something that's happening to you. This is something that's happening to Americans. They work somewhere where their hours have been reduced because of Obamacare. They run a business that's had to reduce payroll or, or, or hours because of Obamacare. They've lost their health insurance coverage they were happy with. They can't see their doctor anymore. They can no longer go to the specialty center, the children's hospital, or the cancer center. So it's not theoretical. It's personal. So this isn't going away anytime soon. Do you have any favorite candidates for, is there anyone we should watch in 2014 who's running, any primaries? Or? Sure. A couple, I mean, I actually, uh, Tom Cotton in Arkansas, I think, is a phenomenal candidate. You know, uh, while we don't usually get involved in primaries, I'm very impressed with Joni Ernst in Iowa. I think she's among the strongest candidates I've ever interacted with anywhere in the country. But what's good about her? Well, a couple points. I think, number one, she has extensive, she has a significant experience, particularly some military experience, and I think she's very strong on national security issues, uh, which our party desperately needs to be the voice for. I, I think we, more than ever, we need to create a strong link, because it's there, between national security foreign policy and our economic security. It, we, you know, increasingly our business, our jobs, our prosperity depends upon our ability to sell products abroad to other markets and other people. And if that somehow is limited through instability or other countries denying us access, we're going to be economically impacted in very serious ways. She seems to well, really understand and articulate that in a very, uh, in a very uh, successful and strong way. So I've been very impressed by her candidates. And maybe we could actually finish on foreign policy because it's fashionable at the moment to hold the view that America should should sort of withdraw a little bit, that you know, Iraq and Afghanistan, I think people feel a little bit burned by that, and there's a mountain of debt, obviously. And you're a voice for what I would call a, a moral foreign, foreign policy as well. Is that, is that a fair characterization? Yeah, so I, I, as I've argued to people, foreign policy has never mattered more to our economics than it does today. Uh, millions of Americans' jobs and livelihood depend upon a, strong, a peaceful and stable world. And America is the only country in the world whose leadership is necessary, required, in order for peace and stability to expand and, and, and persevere on, on the global stage. That's why America, I think, has to have a foreign policy guided by three principles. Number one is we want to pursue peace. And the best way to achieve peace, as history has shown us, is through strength. The best way to avoid war, to avoid war, is by having a military that no one would dare test. The second concept is we need, to, we need to ensure that our means of transport and trade and communications always remain free and open. That means freedom of the seas, freedom of the skies, freedom of the internet. 
and America must always use its power to ensure that international waters remain open, international spa airspace remains open, and the Internet remains free of government interference. And you see efforts, for example, in the South China, South China Sea to impede commerce and trade. And the third is we should never, we should use all of our power and influence to prevent hegemonic powers from emerging in any region of the world. We should never live in a world where a country cannot do business with Americans because a more powerful neighbor says they can't. Mm -hmm. And if you look at what's happening in Eastern Europe with Ukraine, the thing that triggered the Russian response was that Ukraine turned towards the West and the European Union. And we can never allow that to happen in Europe, in Asia, in the Middle East, in Latin America, where some hegemonic power denies other people and other markets the ability to trade and buy from us because that is a direct threat to our economic security. We lost our influence. I think this president's lost his influence. I think people around the world respect America, but they don't respect Barack Obama. They're, they understand our capabilities as a people and as a nation, but they are doubtful that this president knows how to use it or, will, or has the willingness to, to use our influence, our diplomatic influence, our uh, cultural influence, um, our moral influence. And you won't answer this, I'm sure, but any 2016 uh, news? Not today. Not today. Uh, you know, I, at some point uh, here at the end of this year, early next year, I'll have to make a decision about my future, and we'll wait till then. Right now, I'm real focused on 2014, because I'd love to, to spend the next two years in a majority Republican Senate. Well, thank you very much. Thank I you. I appreciate your time. I appreciate it. Thank you.